Welcome to Make No Bones. I'm Emily Barton Altman. And I'm Toby Altman. Make No Bones is a podcast about poetry and the creative life. Each episode, we ask a poet to read a poem and talk about it. They tell us how they wrote it and explain how it reflects the broader priorities of their work. This week's episode features Tara Betts. Hi, my name is Tara Betts. Tara Betts is the author of Break the Habit and Ark and Hue. Her work has appeared in Poetry, American Poetry Review, Essence, Nylon, ESPNW, and numerous anthologies. She is also one of the co-editors of The Beijing of America, Personal Narratives About Being Mixed Race in the 21st Century. Tara holds a PhD in English from Binghamton University and an MFA in Creative Writing from New England College. She teaches at University of Illinois, Chicago. She represented Chicago twice at the National Poetry Slam as part of the first two Mental Graffiti Slam teams and has appeared on radio and television, including HBO's Deaf Poetry Jam. Tara read her poem, A Lesson from the Terror Dome, for us, and we spent some time talking about the public enemy song that it's based on and the way that hip-hop serves as cultural memory. I grew up in Kankakee, Illinois, above my grandparents' tavern. So <laughs> I got to hear a lot of old school blues and R&B songs throughout my childhood. Like I've had people ask me, how do you know who Bobby Blue Bland is? I said, cause that's all my grandfather played in his car. And so that's a very different kind of experience, I think from being in Chicago to grow up in a Midwestern town. And at the time when I was a kid, there were still factories there where people had those kinds of jobs. Now most of those factories are gone and they're kind of flipping and trying to reinvent themselves, you know, in a very precarious economy. I've really loved that I grew up in that space and then came to a bigger city and kind of got to reinvent myself as an adult at 18 and say, wow, this is the rhythm of a city that I needed. And that was really informative in terms of just giving me new people to meet, new people to read, new music to hear. I went to jazz clubs. I went to blues clubs. I went to hip hop clubs. Um, I hung out with people from all over the city. It wasn't until I lived in a, like I lived in predominantly black neighborhoods because my mother is white, my father is black, but to come here and you meet people from all different nationalities it made me see, okay, we all have stories that people need to hear because they're all part of that fount of the human experience. For me, I think it just broadened my sense of what I could read. Like it wasn't gonna just be Shakespeare and Sylvia Plath, even though I love those writers. It was gonna look like the world that I knew was out there, the world I could tangibly witness. Chicago shapes my work because it's one of those places that it mimics the rhythms that feel most comfortable to me. Like, I feel like I know this beast and I can say that after traveling to tons of other cities and being in Puerto Rico and Ghana and London and living in New York City. I'm just like, no, no place else felt right. Like, and it's, it seems like such a weird thing to say, but I almost feel like when I'm in Chicago, I feel like I can breathe because it's like, it mimics the pattern of my breath. Something about it's just really deliberate. You know where it is. It's that so... For me, that's probably one of the floatier 
feelings that I get about being here is that I have this very concrete attachment to the city where physically I feel different when I'm here. So it's like, you know, and then of course they always expect women to write about their bodies, right? So it's like, if there was ever a city that felt like my body, Chicago is that city, you know, as corrupt as it is. When I started freelance writing for publications, I had an apartment here in Rogers Park and there was at least I think a quarter of the wall was covered with rejections because they still sent you paper rejections. And so I had like my rejection from Vibe, my rejection from this, you know, and then after a while I was like, you know, just screw all this. I tore everything down and I just said, I'll buy a box of envelopes and stamps and I'll just keep sending stuff. Writing about hip hop in the 90s, it was interesting because now people term that era the golden era of hip hop and it was kind of, it overlapped with my time here in Rogers Park as an undergraduate at Loyola University. Um, I started the, the hip hop project with my friend Lionel Freeman at Loyola's radio station. So it was one of the few hip hop shows that was in college radio here in Chicago. Um, and it just felt good. Like it still felt fun. Now, was there room to critique it? Yes. Um, particularly as a woman, I still look back on that and I'm just like, yeah, that's kind of when I started to do the heavy lean and just go full throttle with poetry because I knew, I said, okay, if, if the sexism is not going to be addressed, if the homophobia can't be addressed, if we're not going to talk about the rampant consumerism, you know, and you're going to tell me I got to buy this thing or drink this thing. And I'm like, no, that's not what I got into it for. To be in it at that time, it was more fun. It felt more fun to me. Now it seems very much more business oriented and social media oriented. How can I get the clicks? And it just felt like, to me, I kind of backed away from it and kind of dove more into the literary aspect. But in terms of the type of people that I, I, I like as other poets, in terms of what I want my writing to do, who I want my writing to represent, I definitely think hip-hop had a big influence on that. Um, so for me, I try to find myself not just looking at the people that I grew up and the people who are in my family, but I'm like, okay, who are the historic figures that matter to me? Who are the women of color that matter to me? Who are the people of color that matter to me? You know, I think a lot about that. Who are working class people and people that will never get a chance to, you know, indulge in the act of publishing a poetry book. Cause the way things are now, it's not like everybody can just run out and find a press and get a, a publishing deal. It's not, you know, I feel like in many ways it's still like a luxury, even though Audre Lorde was like, poetry is not a luxury. It shouldn't be. Everybody should be able to access the arts, but it just feels like it's a, it's a tough goal to reach, to put those books out. So I think about that too. It's like, am I writing for people who might need this book? Um, but also am I, am I writing in ways that make it accessible? Am I stretching my boundaries as a writer? You know, cause you do find yourself, oh my God, I'm using the same words again, or I'm writing about the same thing. And sometimes the, the obsession where you're writing about the same topic can be interesting, but how do you stretch and expand what that can look like. 
So I think I find myself thinking about that a lot when I write. This poem is really about one of my earliest connections to history that I made through hip hop. And I kind of wrote it based on some of the experiences I have with young people now where they talk about hip hop. So the hip hop they know is very different from what I knew when I was a teenager. And I'm trying to kind of figure out how can I still make those connections? What are some of the things that are still salient? What does it reference? What does it do? And I just immediately thought of that song and literally going to the library where I grew up because I didn't know what the names, who the names were. And they, Public Enemy probably did that a lot more so than other rap groups in the 90s. Um, I know they referenced Yusuf Hawkins, who was killed in a hate crime in New York City. Um, and then Joanne Chesimard, which was the, the government name for Asada Shakur. And I had never heard those names before. I had never been taught about any of those people in school. And, you know, I was just one of those kids who was naturally inquisitive. I would go look it up and I said, wow, it's kind of amazing that not only has hip hop changed, but the process of how we relay information has changed. So kids could be like, they could look it up on Google, but I wanted to kind of document that process of going through the tedium of going to a library before the internet became what it is now. Well, when you look at the first stanza, it's definitely describing this auditory experience of what's, you know, what are some of the sounds in it. You get introduced to the main characters in Public Enemy, Flava Flav, and Chuck D. And it's funny because now, you know, because of Flavor of Love and all this other stuff, Flavor Flav is kind of a joke. But back in the day, he was more of a symbol of kind of like a trickster, somebody who was provocative and kind of like being the hype man for these really political punchlines that Chuck D would make without being so serious. And the reason why he wore the clock is he was like, I want you to know what time it is. I want you to be aware of what's happening. And so when I think about that clock, I still think about, okay, that was kind of him putting out this beam to be like, be aware, be thinking. And how that's so, how a black man in particular, it's so dangerous for somebody to be a black man in America and, and speak up on something still, even in 2017. So I thought about that a lot too. I was like, how can I kind of, even if it's just one line that comes at the end of the stanza and quickly snaps into something else, can I introduce that? And then as I was starting to go into the next stanza, I said, well, what else describes public enemy? The other thing I kept thinking about was their logo, which visually, I mean, it's still one of the things you see on all their t-shirts. It's the black man in the crosshairs. And I was just watching Byron Hurt's documentary, Hip Hop Beyond Beats and Rhymes. And they talked about that in particular how that enigmatic symbol embodies what it means to be profiled in America because of your color. So I, I wanted to kind of just do this really light hand with this really heavy subject and be like, here's the image, here's the image, here's the image, and work my way through it. But then it was like, okay, how do I get to me taking all this in 
and then going and exploring something else. So I think the beginning was just gathering the images and then it was like, okay, what do I as the speaker in the poem do at whatever age I was as a teenager? I can't remember. Because there is kind of like this specter of dying that's in that poem, not just from Newton and this loss of somebody who's become a historic figure, but looking at culture and seeing it in that way. We don't look at hip hop the same way now since it's become a commercial thing that we hear in, you know, we hear it in commercials, we hear it in jingles, we see like stuff on subway posters now. So it's kind of become part of the popular fabric as opposed to the subculture that it started as. So it's kind of a weird thing to see that and then think about, wow, okay, so it's a different life now. A lesson from the Terror Dome. Echoes of sirens blared while phrases belted from the boom of Chuck D's voice, left imprints sinking into memory that bobs up when buoyant history is necessary. The blast and thump of welcome to the Terror Dome droned intent with Flavor Flav's clock swinging on his neck, a manic shining searchlight beaming from a black planet that still embodies fear and chaos for some. When the dancers marched and pivoted in lockstep military formation in front of a target with crosshairs imposed on a black man's silhouette, Chuck D insisted to everyone in earshot, come on down and the sample's rapid response, get down, fired back. But the internal rhyme in the shooting of Huey Newton never left my head. It sent me, curious, to a small Midwestern library before internet searches streamed into houses. So my finger traced columns in an antiquated guide to periodicals, flipped through a card catalog's long shelves, looked for ends, then Newton, who was he? And when I clicked the microfiche into the spindle and rolled through articles moving across a white screen, squares of photos and text rolled one frame at a time until the brief article appeared. Black Panther found dead in Oakland. I shook my head and silently asked how much of the story is missing, how I wouldn't even know about the bullet dropping Newton if Chuck hadn't told me. This episode of Make No Bones was produced and edited by Toby and Emily Altman in Chicago, Illinois. The music for this episode is by Toby Altman. If you like what we do, check out our website, makenobonespodcast.org, for all our episodes. Or follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And please consider rating us on iTunes. It really helps get the word out. Join us next time for an interview with Nicole Brown.